Truth Espresso, episode 269. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello there friends, family, foes, and of course lurkers alike. This is your host Daniel Minnick for another episode of Truth Espresso. And I seem to be on a abortion-related rampage here with the episodes of Truth Espresso that I'm doing solo. And the reason for this episode is that it's some research that I've been doing for a project that I'm working on that I am hoping to be able to get done next year. I'm not going to make any oaths for that, but I'm really hoping that I will be able to get it done next year, but part of that project involves research around the infamous and controversial Margaret Sanger. And so that's what this episode will be about, because when we see a lot of the recent politics, especially as we talked about the Ohio issue one that passed in the last election, pretty much granting unfettered, unlimited abortion in a red state that essentially banned abortion except for in the cases of heartbeat being detected and stuff like that so it wasn't a a perfect abortion ban but it's interesting now to go from a heartbeat law to having abortion on demand virtually up until birth enshrined in the state constitution and so we pray for god to work his will in the state of ohio and possibly to change things for the better there. And so when we're talking about abortion, and we're talking about the largest abortion mill in the world, Planned Parenthood Federation of America, we've got to get back to the one who actually founded it, Margaret Sanger. And as we look at some biography of Margaret Sanger in this episode, we will actually see how things have changed over time. And that Margaret Sanger may not have actually intended all of the fruits of what she started to happen. She has her bad points and she actually has things that would sound to be a little more conservative today. So we're going to get into that. And now, who is Margaret Sanger? So Margaret Louisa Higgins, so her maiden name was Higgins, Margaret Louisa Higgins was born in 1879 and she was essentially a middle child. She was the sixth of 11 children, in fact. So Margaret grew up in a large family and this seems to have played a role in her thinking throughout her life. So essentially, she did grow up in poverty with this large family, and she took that as a factor into her social views. Uh, most of her life, 
One of her goals was to eliminate large families. Now, you'd think that she would love her siblings and appreciate them to such an extent that she would recognize that her own large family and having a lot of closeness there would be a blessing from God, but that did not turn out to be the case for Margaret. And her father was not someone who had a very strong work ethic because although her father grew up Irish Catholic, he basically rejected his Christianity in favor of socialist views. So he was uh, part of the Socialist Party. He would slack off in his work because he wanted to spend as much time as he could jabbering about his socialist views. And he preferred to drink alcohol and talk politics instead of working hard. So one can see that Margaret's father and his own views and his own lack of work ethic can be said to have contributed to Margaret's poverty that she experienced. It wasn't just that she had a large family, but we'll see that Margaret seemed to adopt her father's views on politics and not really see that lack of a work ethic and socialist worldview is what encourages poverty, not so much the size of one's family. So we see a little bit of irony there on the part of Margaret Now, when Margaret Higgins was young, she would see children in other families that had fewer siblings, and she would kind of look longingly on them because it seemed like they had a better quality of life, whereas she would have to do a lot of chores to make ends meet, milk cows and such. And so, once again, comparing her type of life with what she would see in smaller families made her think that the large family was kind of a holdout from days of yore and an unnecessary burden on society. So Margaret had uh, three other sisters, and the rest of her siblings were boys, and she and two of her sisters attended Claverick College And after graduating, Margaret taught first graders in New Jersey. She only taught first grade for a little bit, and her job ended when she moved back home to take care of her sick mother. Margaret saw her mother succumb to tuberculosis at around 50 years old. Some sources say 50, some say 49, some say 48. So around there is when Margaret's mother died of tuberculosis. But Margaret saw the ailment of her mother as a weakness that her mother had. Like, why did she contract tuberculosis and succumb to it at such a young age? It must have been because of the 18 pregnancies that she had that weakened her body unnecessarily. It was the curse of childbearing and pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies, unnecessary pregnancies that deprived her of the quality of life that women deserved. And so Margaret 
saw her misfortuned mother as someone who suffered from misogyny, suffered from a lack of freedom for women, and Margaret wanted to provide the solution to it, and that was going to be her life's goal, to help women have a higher quality of life so that they could live longer, bear fewer children, and be more independent not be under the thumb of pregnancies and childbirth that they might not want, and that they would therefore also be wealthier. Now, when Margaret's somewhat negligent father expected her to take over her mother's duties, so basically replace her mother's role in the house there, Margaret left with two of her older sisters. She knew that this was not the life for her. Now, Margaret was very interested in medicine, and she wanted to be a doctor. But while she was studying medicine to be a doctor, she switched to nursing, and she enrolled in medical courses at White Plains Hospital. When she finished her credentials at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital, she met and wed an architect by the name of William Sanger. So kind of basically at a party hosted by the hospital there. She met him. I think that's what it was. So Margaret and William Sanger had two sons named Grand and Stuart, and also the third child was a daughter named Margaret, so a Margaret Jr. there. Though the junior Margaret would die later in early childhood, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, Margaret Sanger, the senior, herself struggled with tuberculosis, And so was that a result of being the mother of three children or being the sixth of 11 children of her mother? Who knows? But it seemed that Margaret and other people, her mom, they all struggled with tuberculosis. So one would think maybe it wasn't just pregnancies that contributed to making a woman weak and contracting tuberculosis. Maybe it was something else. Now, Margaret saw some doctors, and at this time, Margaret was kind of on track to follow the instincts with which she grew up. You know, she planned to have more children. She kind of wanted to have a large family herself, at least instinctively and by experience, but the doctor shot down this instinct by telling her, if you have more children, there's going to be problems. And so I think that changed her trajectory. Margaret and her husband and their two sons moved to New York City. And then Margaret Sanger returned to her career in nursing after that. Now, from her exposure to activist causes in college, while she was studying nursing, she would participate in some activist causes that were mostly geared around socialism and possibly contraceptive methods or things pertaining to population control. Sanger, always looking for activist groups to join, joined the Socialist Party in New York. 
And she wasn't at first the leader. She kind of substitute spoke when one of the speakers wasn't able to make it, but Sanger found herself to be a fiery speaker with ideas that would captivate people, and then they would make her an honorary speaker who would have many speeches in the future. And her speeches to socialist gatherings about women's reproduction would later transform into her political speaking and writing career. So Sanger would travel around different places in the United States and also other countries to give speeches. And she would write a lot, write a lot, contribute to periodicals, ultimately write things that would turn into books. And this all started with her finding herself speaking in the Socialist Party. Now, while practicing as a nurse, Margaret Sanger found herself caring for poor pregnant women who begged her for ways to avoid future pregnancies. So basically, she would find poor women who were pregnant again and would say they didn't want to be pregnant and would ask Margaret if she knew of ways to avoid pregnancy. Some women in Margaret's care were ill or infected from abortion tonics or injured from back alley abortion doctors. Now, Sanger started her writing career in 1912 with a column in the periodical known as the New York Call entitled, What Every Girl Should Know. So this was what Margaret Sanger would start with for her contributions, for her writing in in the periodical there. And because she talked about contraceptive methods and anatomy and stuff like that, her series of articles happened to run afoul of the Comstock Act. The Comstock Act was started in the 1870s by a man by the name of Anthony Comstock, And the Comstock Act prohibited literature over the post office that was considered obscene, and that would include lewd materials, materials about contraception, any kind of written or methods or tools or pills or whatever to procure abortions, just anything like that that was afoul of what would be considered a traditional or biblical view of relationships. Now, Sanger really wanted to learn more about contraception, but the Comstock Act in the United States and associated um, state acts in New York at the time made that a little more difficult. So Sanger toured France with her husband and children. Now, after about a year there in France, Margaret and her husband William divorced. William decided to stay in France while Margaret and the children moved back to New York City. Now, when she did this, Margaret was a little more of a motherly type, but as she became involved in political activism, she began to sacrifice tending to her children to pursue her activism. And unfortunately, as much as she probably would not have wanted to admit it, she was becoming more like her father. She was ever the idealist for society, but 
loathe to her own offspring. And, you know, one would really think that Margaret should have put two and two together and realized that some of the reason for the problems she experienced in her childhood was because of socialist beliefs and a father who wanted to talk about that and drink rather than realize his place to work hard and care for his family. So, like, one of the problems with socialism is to focus so much on loving humanity and society in the abstract with idealism, but really not care about the faces that you see every day. Now, in 1914, Margaret Sanger published her own magazine called The Woman Radical, And in one of the articles of this magazine is where Sanger coined the term birth control. So you've heard of the term birth control. Well, it began with Margaret Sanger in 1914 in an article for The Woman Radical. Her explicit details of contraception in The Woman Radical brought Margaret Sanger in legal trouble with the Comstock Act. So she was federally convicted with a prison sentence, and then to avoid the sentence, she escaped to England. But, you know, Margaret was always the determined activist. So even while she was en route to England, she found a publisher ally in New Jersey, communicated with him and to print and to widely distribute her pamphlet about contraception called Family Limitation. So, while in England, Margaret Sanger researched contraceptive methods some more to battle her conviction in the United States, she also, while in England, joined the Neo-Malthusian Society, which believed that overpopulation led to poverty. Now, neo-Malthusianism might have a little bit of overlap with Margaret's feminism and socialism at the time, such that contraception was a means to an end, but Margaret didn't necessarily imbibe all of neo-Malthusian doctrine, but it would turn out to influence her later on. The Neo-Malthusian Society's primary means for population control was to teach birth control methods. Now, Margaret Sanger originally saw contraception as a way to liberate women and reduce poverty and reduce the poverty of large families. So, the political influences from college and European medical research added population control and eugenics to the mix of Margaret Sanger's thinking. Hi, I'm Sharon Wilharm, host of All God's Women podcast and internationally syndicated radio show. I'd love to invite you to join me as we bring to life the stories of women in the Bible and discover their relevance for our lives today. Listen at allgodswomen.com, your favorite podcast platform, or at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Now, back to William Sanger, her ex-husband. He moved back to New York City in 1914 And while he was there, a stranger acting as an agent from the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice 
showed up at William's door and requested a copy of Margaret's family limitation and bought the copy from him. And then a few days later, William was arrested and he faced trial for violating the Comstock Act. Now, yeah, we could see that there was some underhandedness of the regime at the time, even if it was allegedly for prudence. Perhaps they shouldn't do stuff like this and act like spies and try to trick people into getting in trouble and stuff. But nevertheless, with a choice of a month in prison or a fine, William Sanger chose prison to fight a political battle. After his prison, William wrote to Margaret, who was in England at the time, and he narrated his struggle, talking about what happened and how he was championing her cause and ended up in prison and basically was a political prisoner for a month. This act emboldened Margaret herself to return the next year to the United States again and to face her own trial. Now, Margaret was instrumentally involved in founding what was known as the National Birth Control League for the purpose of promoting birth control methods such as what are called diaphragms and also to research pills and stuff like that. But the National Birth Control League refused to support Margaret Sanger in her trial because they wanted to win legally. They didn't want to win by thumbing their nose at the law. But Margaret herself was skirting the law. So Margaret lost the support of her own organization there in her efforts in her trial. And also, unfortunately, before she faced trial, her daughter, Margaret Jr., got pneumonia and soon died. So we have to feel sorry for Margaret Sanger in this position here. But this misfortune actually helped Sanger's case because the public seemed to pity her here. Sanger refused to plead guilty to the charges, then because of public support, the judge decided to drop the charges. Now, this didn't turn out to be kind of a warning of things to come for Margaret Sanger. She was on a mission. She continued her crusade seemingly as if her trial were not a warning of what could come later on if she didn't stop. On October 16, 1916, Margaret Sanger, one of her sisters, and an interpreter from Chicago started a birth control center in Brooklyn, New York, and they plastered the area with ads. Now, of course, this seemed to be kind of begging for the Comstock Act again, and after 10 days of treating about 400 women with her clinic, Sanger and her colleagues were arrested. After an overnight stay in jail, Margaret Sanger resumed the clinic the next month and faced arrest again. Her trial this time sentenced her to 30 days in prison. So, if the first trial in which the charges were dropped were a warning to her, she didn't heed that warning and she was determined to be a political prisoner. When Margaret finished her 30 days in prison, she appealed the decision on her release. 
In the appeals trial, which was in 1918, she gave the judge a copy of a treatise that she wrote entitled The Case for Birth Control. And in this book-length exhibit, Sanger explained her view that poor, large families didn't have access to birth control, but smaller, wealthier families benefited from it. In other words, it wasn't that birth control itself was a problem. It was just that only the wealthy people seemed to have access to it because it was kind of a luxury item at this time and that they benefited financially and with quality of life because they had something that would prevent unwanted pregnancies. Now, as a result of this trial, although Margaret didn't get her charges appealed, the judge in the ruling said that licensed physicians could prescribe contraceptives for married couples for medical emergencies. So although that seemed to be a very minor victory, that was enough for Margaret Sanger to have some legal clout. Because if licensed physicians could prescribe contraceptives that opened the door for Margaret to pursue her contraceptives, provided that she had licensed physicians who would cooperate with her. Sanger seized this opportunity from her bittersweet case by adding licensed physicians indeed to her practices. In 1921, Sanger founded the American Birth Control League and served as the president until 1928. In 1922, the year after founding the American Birth Control League, Margaret Sanger married her second husband, an oil tycoon by the name of Noah Slee. Of course, she was going to find someone who shared her ideas and also had money to fund her pursuits. But it's interesting that her name remains Margaret Sanger in history and not Margaret Slee. Margaret Sanger also traveled to Asian countries during the 1920s. So she traveled in 1922 to teach her birth control ideas. In 1923, Margaret opened the first legalized birth control clinic in New York City called the Clinical Research Bureau, and then later that was renamed the Birth Control Research Bureau. In 1939, the two organizations that she started, so the American Birth Control League and the Birth Control Research Bureau, merged together. They joined together to become the Birth Control Federation of America. And then later, in 1942, the name changed to Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Now, Margaret Sanger herself wasn't in favor of this name change because she believed that Planned Parenthood kind of obscured the very specific political mission that she wanted. The bold purpose of the organization in her mind was always about birth control and not a very kind of general name that seemed more polite called Planned Parenthood. But nevertheless, even with resisting the name change, Margaret remained on the board of Planned Parenthood and in a leadership position for years. Now, Sanger, over the years, apparently adapted to the Planned Parenthood name. 
1946, she collaborated with compatriots in other countries to form the International Committee on Planned Parenthood, and the group grew and became the International Planned Parenthood Federation in 1952. Margaret Sanger ultimately passed away in 1966. And of course, we know that 1966 is a mere few years before the landmark Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that would make abortion a secular sacrament. Before that, you had Griswold v. Connecticut, which expanded contraception from married couples to cohabiting couples and stuff like that. So we have this slippery slope from Margaret's contraceptive push to get it into the hands of and to enable people to have relationships and to prevent pregnancies without being married. And ultimately, you know, not everyone uses contraception. And so abortion was becoming popular. And then we have Roe v. Wade in 1973. And we all know what happened with that for the next 49 years to shape culture to turn a blind eye to abortion and then now with the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision in 2022 those of us who believe that babies should not be killed in the womb have a battle on our hands to convince the culture that this is wrong that we should have a culture of life because God created the world we're created in the image of God and you don't kill innocent humans so now let's look at what Margaret Sanger had to say about abortion Because to see Planned Parenthood today, the manifestation of Planned Parenthood today as the world's largest abortion mill, you might be shocked to learn that Margaret Sanger herself was not a proponent of abortion. She didn't speak very favorable to it. In fact, Margaret complained that the Comstock Act treated contraception and abortion as if they were both wrong and kind of the same thing. Margaret looked at contraception as an innocent activity, as an innocent solution that would prevent abortion. So she looked at abortion as basically something that was caused by prudish laws and traditions and things that would force pregnancies on women and then women would resort to abortions out of desperation that this disproportionately impacted poor people and so Margaret Sanger believed she had a moral crusade to fight to push contraception to have the dual effect of liberating women and giving people a higher quality of life and, on the other side, reduce or eliminate abortions. And Margaret Sanger herself did speak lowly of abortion. So, to a Berlin, Germany audience in 1927, Margaret said, quote, Birth control has always been practiced, beginning with infanticide, which is abhorred, and then by abortion, nearly as bad. Contraception, on the other hand, is harmless, unquote. Now, this is from her autobiography. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Sanger also, when talking with a German doctor, said, quote, Abortion was a ridiculous substitute for contraceptives, unquote. 
Yet the doctor favored abortions because he believed they could control women more with them. So the German doctor favored abortions over contraceptives because he thought that men can control women more with abortions or the state could control women and manipulate them more because they had the means to provide abortions whereas contraceptions would break away women's dependence on them. So <laughs> when you want to think about what led to national socialism, Nazi thought at the time, think uh, Nazis favored abortions, okay? The Third Reich in Germany favored abortion as a way to control women. So I kind of want to say, put that in your pipe and smoke it. If you think abortion is a way to liberate women, that wasn't the thought of totalitarians at the time of Margaret Sanger. When Margaret Sanger was in Crimea, and when a, a Russian man confused Margaret Sanger's birth control, as she called it, for abortions, Margaret replied, quote, No, that's abortion. We don't want that. Birth control is different, unquote. Sanger lauded the success of contraception in the Netherlands, which she saw as a model for the United States. She said that what she witnessed was that contraception in the Netherlands reduced both abortions and late miscarriages. So one can see from Margaret's thought that contraception was indeed a moral thing. It prevented death, it prevented poverty, it prevented miscarriages and abortions in her mind. So even if Margaret Sanger was wrong on this contraception thing, at least looking into her mind, we could see why she fought so hard as she did. Margaret was convinced of the virtue of her fight in court because she believed contraception would prevent abortions, among other results that would cause women to be, quote, physically damaged and spiritually crippled, unquote, in her words. Her means of birth control would save women from what she called, quote, the most barbaric methods, unquote, such as what she called infanticide and abortion. So she refers to infanticide and abortion in the same thing as barbaric methods. Margaret Sanger would try to help women in her clinic and she would contrast the benefits of contraception with, quote, abortion, which was the wrong way no matter how early it was performed because it was taking life, unquote. So Margaret Sanger said that abortion, whether it's late term or early term, no matter how early it was taking life. So those of you who are pro-abortion, maybe you should heed what Margaret Sanger said because she said abortion was always wrong no matter when it was performed because she said it was taking life. Now, contraception was innocent in her eyes because she said, quote, because life had not yet begun, unquote. So truly, Margaret Sanger believed her crusade for contraception was pristine and virtuous, and one benefit among many would be to reduce or eliminate abortion as a means of birth control. 
So one must wonder what Sanger would think of Planned Parenthood today, the organization she pioneered, because today we see that it callously dismembers and discards unborn babies to rake in billions of dollars of blood money. Would Sanger blush if she were to see the Planned Parenthood of 2023? The Planned Parenthood of post-Roe? Now, I haven't talked about whether contraception in general is wrong, just what Margaret Sanger thought about it. I could talk a little bit about that later, but we see that Margaret Sanger was not a fan of abortion. So this is the end of part one of talking about Margaret Sanger. And it sounds a little bit, as I've discussed, as if I'm actually kind of cheering her on. Trust me, I'm not. Because we haven't gotten into some of the things that Margaret Sanger has said, such as her ideas of eugenics and population control and some of the things that she believed contraception would be able to usher in in her model for the world. And so we hope that you have enjoyed this little expose on Margaret Sanger and that if this interests you, and trust me, we're going to hear some very interesting and kind of freaky things that the infamous Margaret Sanger wrote and said on eugenics and the purpose of birth control in her mind. And so stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.